This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. And today, I was going to say, today we're reading short and deep, but no, that's not right. The reason I was going to say that is because it's only two people, which is very unusual. Hi, Paul. <laughs> Hello, Jesse. Long time no talk. Yeah. Well, no, normally we don't talk, just you and me, but uh, it's just you and me today. So we are reading. No, I don't even know how to do this show. Uh, you know how to do show Last Days of Thronus by John Bloodstone, a.k.a. Stuart J. Byrne. This was recommended to me uh, by the narrator, who I guess was trying to promote. I'm pretty sure he was trying to promote uh, reviews of the new audiobook that he just recorded. You know, get his name out there. And um, he did some research and found somebody who actually might be interested in it. Um, and I'm like, I don't think I can review this, but I might be able to do a podcast on it. Um, because it's an old science fiction novel that, uh, basically I would totally read if there was an audiobook. Why wouldn't I read this book? And I'd never heard of the author, John Bloodstone, aka Stuart J. Byrne. I'd never heard of the book. I didn't know that it was public domain until I did a search. Um, I, you didn't, you'd never heard of this guy, right? I'd never heard of this guy. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, it's like February 1954 science stories, just like, I mean, it's not a magazine I've read any of because looking at the other stories in that issue, mm. I don't recognize any of them or their authors. Most of those are either house names or pseudonyms. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not a, uh, science stories is pretty hard to get. Uh, I don't think, don't think we have the complete run of that yet. And it's, it was not one of the top tier of, I mean, it wasn't at the bottom either. Um, of science, uh, science fiction magazines. But, uh, I note, like, for example, the cover, which most people who publish this book use, like, there's a, um, armchair fiction, uh, it's, it's sort of an ace double reprint of this. Um, and it uses the cover that's on science stories and just, cause it says Last Days of Thronus by John Bloodstone at the bottom. But if you dig into the, issue um and read the you know editorial it says this cover is subject of a contest write a story to match it right so that cover has nothing to do with the contents of the story so i didn't include it in the pdf even though it says you know last days of thronus on the cover a brilliant forty-five thousand word novel it says on the cover and it shows a crashed spaceship with like i don't know a ghost spinning around uh at the top of it, I'm thinking. Wait, 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 what? What? Yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you the link. So the thing is, is if you if you saw that and you just finished reading the story, but you hadn't read the editorial, you might think, oh, um, this is like what happened after the story's end, because <laughs> there is a spaceship in the story, right? Right. Uh, a singular spaceship. Now it isn't a golden ship, as is mentioned in the book. But um, it is a spaceship, and there's this weird world. But yeah, it has uh, the cover has absolutely nothing to do with the content of the, or it's not depicting any scenes in the book. It's designed to provoke a 
a story written by it. And the, there's a whole thing in the, in the magazine about that cover that's unrelated. On the other hand, the interior art by J. Allen St. John, who is a very famous artist, um, for basically illustrating most of, uh, Burroughs' work as interior artist. Um, J. Allen St. John is, he's, I think he's very expensive to buy in, in new. And, um, so he did lots of Tarzans and he did the Warlord of Mars, Pellucidar, the Mad King, the Moon Maid, right? He did a ton of work, almost exclusively, it seems like, with, um, Burroughs. And then with this story, we've basically got a guy who's in a Burroughsian planetary romance. So it's a good fit. And if you look at the, you're, I assume you're looking at the PDF and looking at the beautiful I, art. I, I, I am looking at the PDF and looking at the beautiful art, that opening, that first image of Splash the two, page, up, yeah. the, fi- the fighters and the, someone looking up, over watching, watching this combat. And then mm-hmm. you go, scroll down, you find, the, the strange creature and yeah the, the creature is pretty good makes you want to read the, the story right the uh the confrontation with his former lover and yeah the, yeah the art the art is very very much uh works with the story as, as far as as far as the burrows connection given the timing i'm thinking this is almost like a precursor to have you read L. Sprague de Camp's uh, Biagin's Interplanetarius stories. Mm-hmm. Yep. They, they they go from the late... I, um, I'd have to actually look that up. But, um, hold on. We have the internet. Mm-hmm. It drew back what, what, its what, mouth what? to expose the shining incisor beak, its tentacles poised like great serpents, ready to strike with its knife-like, oh. knife-like hooks. Oh, 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 no. The first one's in the... The first one started in the fifties. Okay, so so Ellis Regda Camp's Viagens Interplanetarius stories basically tried to rationalize Burroughsian planetary romance stories in in the story of a a planet called Krishna, which has humanoid like aliens and humans go and visit it and they have restrictions to try to avoid giving the aliens high technology, so there's lots of sword and daring do on the planet when they interact with the natives because they can't just bring their laser guns and shoot everybody <laughs> because that would be against the rules of of the interplanetary society of uh of earth and it's also against the barosian rules right you gotta it's also against the barosian rules yeah so there's plenty of sword play and and bromance because the 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 humans and the human-like aliens do find each other attractive even if the if the aliens on the planet are green skinned and have little tentacles coming out of their eyebrows. But, but anyway, that, that kind of like deconstructs and tries to rationalize a Barosian story into as rational as possible. This feels like it's before that conceptually, because it's not trying to do that. It's, it, it's, it's going to go there because we get, because we have this golden ship. Now we're going to spoil it, readers. Yes, I know. It was. We have, we have this golden ship, which is clearly an ancient spaceship that's, yep, that they've got control of and they're using to go between the two planets. And 
I mean, we the readers know what's going on, but the characters have no idea what this actually is or why this actually would work, which I find interesting. And then there's yeah, but we do the, as readers, right? We do. Did you catch the fact that the subjugated the, the subjugated people are actually actually trying to claw back civilization because they've invented gunpowder? Did you catch that? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I thought like that's clever. I mean, it doesn't say gunpowder, but that's what it is, right? That's what it is. It's like okay, so so the, the conquering the the conquering race has this the spaceship they can blast everything, but the ones they're conquering are they actually the more technologically technologically clawing back because they're actually trying to rebuild that sort of technological civilization, but they can't stand up against a spaceship that can blast planets to atoms. I find that a very interesting dynamic conflict. If not for the spaceship, yeah, the, 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 con- the conquerors would have no chance the, the, the black powder weapons would just decimate them. I found that a really interesting, and that's all just back. That's just like backgrounded to, to, uh, Garanthus's story mm-hmm. that I found really interesting. I, I was thinking about how uh, I was thinking about what you would be thinking about. Um, what I was thinking about the <laughs> the um, world building here because um, I have opinions about it, and I was thinking, I wonder if Paul has a similar opinion about this. So I, before I I say that, I want to just tell you how little this book has been published. So it was published as a one shot, you know, it's not serialized. It's the, almost the whole issue of mm-hmm. uh, science stories for every 1954. And then it got published uh, in a create space um, publication um, as the last days of Thronus rather than last days of Thronus. And then there's the audiobook, and that's it. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That is, very, that is very crazy. That hasn't picked up anywhere. It's a pretty good book, I think. It's not. It's it, not the deepest book, but it's pretty good. I. I. I mean, I, I, in the science, in the in the science fantasy planetary romance tradition, it it works just. It works very serviceably. It it's does got, what it says on the it, tin, it, right? It, it is. A it does what it says on the tin. Romance. I, planetary I mean, romance of the Burrosian type, and yet it's not a ripoff of Burroughs exactly. It's just. It says it's it, it, it's not because I mean we don't have a Earthman. Tr- I mean we have two planets. Right. Yep, two two, two he's planets. He's a man off his they world, call- but it's not our world. Right, he's gone or from one world. It? He goes from one world, trying to go back to the other. I missed what you said. You whispered. I said, "Or is it?" So or is it? Did, so, um, did you catch the ending? What's going on there? Um. Pack, unpack that for me. Maybe okay, I missed something. so uh, one of the cool aspects of this book is um, it's set in a solar system with three inhabitable planets, right? Uh, or two inhabitable planets and one that's not really inhabitable, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and so there's this golden spaceship that came from the ancients somehow, right? And whoever right. controls it is uh, the natural leader because... Um, he can call down basically fire from space, laser beams or microwave beams from space that can kill anybody uh, who disobeys him. Um, and it's, uh, you know, royally commanded, right? The emperor has control of this, this golden spaceship. Um, and then uh, we visit briefly both worlds. Uh, 
And then oh, God, we yeah, also are yeah, mentioned. Yeah, obviously, which is saying, yeah, go okay. go for it. Yeah, pack it out for people. Okay, so um, at the end, one of the worlds is destroyed, right? Um, and then there's uh, two others that are possibly habitable, right? And I was thinking, oh, was it? I think Thronus is the fifth world. Is that correct? You got yes, the, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So Thronus is the fifth world. The third, uh, f- third and fourth worlds are habitable, right? Um, and the first world, uh, no. So it'd be the second world is habitable. It's like our version of Venus, right? Or Carson of Venus, uh, from Burroughsian point of view. Then there's the third planet from the sun, which is Hamardin, I think, right? No, no, no. Third, third, the, the third one is the wind where the ship winds up. Which was, uh, I'm sorry, I'm okay. jumping. I didn't, yeah, the fourth right. world is Hammerdeen. Fourth world is Hammerdeen, and the fifth world is uh, oh, maybe fifth maybe, world is fourth maybe world the, is Hammerdeen, and third is the one they wind up getting transported to. If they call it the Latish, the the, the it's the one that was very primitive, right? And right. too hot. In any case, um, I, if if I was doing the math right in my head. Um, and the names right in my head at the end of the book, because I'm listening to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking that this is, um, a panspermia story, or at least, you know, humans are not from Earth originally. Yes. Um, and there's a bit of stuff about that, you know, like the setup at the beginning saying, you know, what the planet was like and it's full of volcanic explosions. <laughs> Basically, it's dinosaur time, right? Um, and then what is the name of the places they named? Um, I'll just read, I'll just read the ending here. Yeah, yeah, re- read it. I gotta find the place to start though. Alright, so this is on the second to last page. The last command which the Garthanus gave the golden ship was obeyed. It transported its passengers to Hammerdeen, but the destruction of the Thr- Thronus was felt even there. For years, the flaming wreckage of a once mighty world continued to flash through the heavens, much of it falling upon Hammerdeen and filling the atmosphere with radioactivity. The golden ship waited patiently until the survivors re- realized it, it intended to transport them to another world where they could be safe. On the third world from the sun, known to them as Dal, Dal- Latashin. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the survivors found uncertain haven. Uh, and haven's a useful word here. Storms, ferocious animals, and heat drove them to the higher lands, separating them until only small groups of survivors were left, far up in the mountains where the heat was less intense. And then, get the names. Adamas and... and Ye- Ye- oh, I can't Now I'm reading Yevia it. discovered a tropical haven at the top of a great mountain. There lived They, they lived there together in a vast natural garden, <laughs> which they named Hedinus. Yes. <laughs> and surrounding country they called Aralanthus, a.k.a. Atlantis. Yes. <laughs> named for another world, which their children and children of the Hamarian survivors presented in one form or another throughout the ensuing ages. Now the work of the golden ship was done. It moved off into the star sea, no man knew where, to meditate, perhaps, forever on the mysteries of man and God, which were incomprehensible to its mechanical mind. On, lonel- on lonely Hammerdeen, 
where the untended canals grew thick and sticky, ve- sick, sickly vegetation and radioactive sands, then deserts crept upward into the once green hills of Tharlantis and swirled through the empty hills of an abandoned villa, the heroic statue of a warrior appeared to look beyond the marble walls at the end of the Walls at the dead fragments of a world swirling endlessly through the dark of the star sea beyond Hammerdeen, as though it were aware of a treme- of tremendous vistas of glorious and inglorious past. Someone had inscribed the words of an epic lament in its base, which ended, Their dreams of old we too have known. <laughs> we are flesh and they are stone, and yesterday is dust. Yes, now, now that you bring that up, yes, yeah, so... Yes, Earth, Earth is Delatachine, Mars is Hammerdine, and Thronus is the asteroid belt because th- it got destroyed. I think that's right. I, I, I think that that's right. Am I? Yeah. No, no, you're, you're not crazy. No, like, they, they, they're clearly pointing hard at that. Yeah. Now, now, now that I makes me it, like the soon. book a lot more. Um, just that it, he's, that, even though it's, it's got all this, this, it's, it's very space opera-y uh, in terms of plot twists and, it's not, it's nothing we haven't really seen before in other science fiction or I guess since. But, um, I, I, when I was, um, considering this book for, you know, maybe do, not writing a review, but doing it as a podcast, just mm-hmm. somebody sends me an email. I'm not going to say no automatically. That's a jerky thing to do. So, um, especially if it's, you know, it's, they sort of sought, sought me out specifically rather than just some rando. Um, Review my stuff, whoever you are. But um, I started. I press play on the file on Audible, and it starts off with the song, "The Golden yes. Years." And and I that was the, I was thinking that's a weird way to start a story of of today. Nobody would do that. So I'm looking at. Oh, it turns out it's an old book, right? And it reminds me a lot of you know Tolkien. You see that sing song? Yes. It's yeah, the same yeah, I, beat, right? Yeah, the, the the narrator leans right into that. He does. He does and, a really and good goes, job. And goes for it. Yeah. Tim Harper is his name. It, it's Tim an, Harper. Yeah, Tim Harper is the one who recommended this. Book. Who recommended? It, yeah. And Thank you, Tim narrated. Harper. And he does a pretty good job. There's. I noticed there was a couple of words uh, about three quarters of the word way through that he mispronounced, um, but. So good as, you know, that's doing all the singing, um, of these songs. And then there's tons of vocab that's, it's very specific for this world. And that's what I'm saying about the world building, Paul. Like, yes, yeah, they, 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 he definitely goes deep into building up this world with names of days and, and all the, the logic. And the, yeah, the differences between the two planets and how they, how they approach things and names of ranks and it's like, so, so he, he, he clearly wanted to, yeah, to layer up this world and make it all seem as logical and rational as possible. It, and, and it's just like, and it's like, and, and, and the, and the lovely detail. So like, for example, mm-hmm. since I just pulled up this page, uh, early, early in the, early in the book, uh, he winds up getting, going to this amphitheater where he thinks he's going to be killed and he already, Coco already knows that, but it's so lovely to tell. I'm going to read this. Mm-hmm. The amphitheater was now completed outside. 
the quote unquote stage consisted of a small stone small stone slab at the base of the low bluffs, which formed the backdrop where he was supposed to stand before the spear gunners. Opposite the bluffs at the distance of some one hundred tally parentheses the towels being the average height of a man see nice little mm-hmm. building there mm-hmm. was the low ridge of hills that looked upon Thorantus and the broad thamus canal along this ridge crude benches had been installed on which now sent hundreds of homarins under the bows and swords of the Thorosian guards from the garrison in the center of the amphitheater in a position just behind the squad of spear gunners was an uncovered pavilion where the prince of Muthark sat in company with Morculus under the black and gold banner of the Thorosian empire the fact that the pavilion was uncovered seemed to have close connection with the fact that the golden ship hovered directly above it at a distance of about 200 tally both prince Adamus and Morculus glanced upward at the huge gleaming vessel from time to time as though to reassure themselves of its presence doesn't that just bring you right it's, there it's very very vivid. It's very colorful. It's not. I, I wouldn't say it's as colorful as reading Robert E. Howard, but it's very colorful. You get a real sense of like embodiment, you know, like uh, and and the interests of the author. Like I have not read anything else by Stuart J. Byrne, aka John Bloodstone. Um, although there are things that you might have read by him. <laughs> we'll get into that later, but. Um, I I found myself thinking this guy is channeling uh what we like about Burroughs, you know, that sort of embodied, fleshy, um colorful and well thought through world building that like uh, just if you look at everybody's names, right? There's a logic to it. They all sort of sound like elf names, right? Uh, Garthanus and Calanthe and Calanthus, right? Uh, Muthark, yeah. right? There's all sorts of kinds of, uh, sort of almost etymological construction to the names of things. And as you point out, even like the days of the week and the measuring system. And you don't see that normally in, like, that's why it's hard, to, like, world building and making a, a, a whole universe or solar system here. For a five-hour book, that's like a, a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, to make the story actually work as well, not just build up that world for, you know, for fun and then just say, uh-huh, I didn't write the actual book. I just built up the world behind it. He built up a world and then he got a plot going and he uses the same trick over and over and I kind of like it. I, I was like, oh, that's the same trick he pulled earlier, but he keeps pulling the same trick over and over. You know the one I'm talking about? Which one? Where he he introduces somebody and it turns out they have a secret identity. Yes, yes. <laughs> that they know about or they don't know about, right? And that yeah, trick it, is used it, it, it over turns out that and he, over He himself and over has again. a secret identity. That's right. So, so yeah, he pulls the trick on himself at, on the main character at the end, which is like, I saw that coming. It's like, yes, yeah, by the end. That explains why I, the ship didn't kill him. I and, think that's yeah. a good thing that, like, he's teaching us. Okay, you you like Twelfth Night? Oh, you like Shakespeare? How he has characters go in disguise, right? Uh, well, I'm just going to use that trick over and over again. And so when when uh, it we're getting close to the end, and we have a final reveal of who our main guy is, Garthanus, his history and stuff like that, I was like, oh shit, he's turning evil. <laughs> I'm like, pretty sure, pretty sure I'm going to be tricked here. Um, and I'm like, oh shit, what if he doesn't? What if this, I'm not, cause I haven't read any reviews or anything. What if, 
what if he's a monster? What if I've been rooting for a monster this whole time? And then, <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> That's a relief. That's good writing. Right? He had me, he had me coming and going. I thought, I thought, uh, I thought, I know, I know what he's doing here, so I'm okay. But it works in almost every respect. Like, if you find any character in the book, even though the, I love the robot or the AI on the, the AI ship, of the ship. Yes. Right. The metal God. Um, because we know what it is, right? We even have the words AI and, you know, right. Computer and those things are, dude, that's a very early one. Most science fiction doesn't really get to go in with artificial intelligent computers and programmed machines like that until later we get we get some in the 40s right a little bit we get some we, we get some in the 40s like a lot of joe yeah yeah stuff like that but yeah it was only in the 50s that it started picking up so yeah, this is this is a little ahead of the curve mm-hmm. and, and getting getting uh exploring that idea, especially from such an oblique angle like nobody except the reader knows what the heck that ship yeah. is or what the ai is yeah which it's, is which is a really, really nice balancing act and you see it like um in the in yeah i guess this is uh, maybe it's maybe it's right in the right time uh, philip k dick has a story called the great sea right uh which is set on earth after a nuclear war and uh pretty pretty soon we figure out well out of halfway through the story we figure out what the great sea stands for it's the great computer right but they right. don't they don't know they just think it's a god and it demands sacrifices from them and and so the us working out what's going on in the computer's mind is pretty fun. Us seeing how the computer and the ship is like he does a he does a whole Kirk he does he he Kirks the computer right. <laughs> yes, he Kirks the curve for Rosa Kirk. I mean, he he, he, he argues with the AI to tell him you know look i know you better than you know yourself because i'm one of the kind of species that programmed you even though he doesn't know what programming is right um so i know your mind better than you know my mind even though you can you can uh, telepathically read my mind (laughs) and the computer's like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh tell me more (laughs) and then we get that scene where he basically we get the sense that the computer wants to do something or tell him something, but can't. And he gets some sort of idea, but when we're never told he gets that idea. But I love that idea that the computer's reading his mind um, and we're seeing what's happening, but we don't know what the computer's reading exactly and what it's taking from it. The computer doesn't say, right? And, right, because uh, uh, he's not the viewpoint. Yeah, r- right. But also, like, it's it's sort of concealing its thoughts from him, but he's still kirking it. <laughs> if kirking is a verb, I guess. Kirking. Well, you 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 now have you now have done it. I mean, there's not even that many Star Trek Nick original episodes where he does that. There's only a three, claimant. maybe. There's a, um, there's, in fact, uh, isn't there one of them an Eden one? Right. Yes. Yeah. One. Or yes. One of them is definitely an Eden one. Yeah. At least which, one. Which, of them which, which, which kind of, we kind of really uh, hammered uh, hammered the point. I did. I did see as in, I was reading about Byrne. Apparently, um, um, Roddenberry was a fan. Which oh, is interesting. really? Yes. Yes, Roddenberry was a fan of him. So that's interesting. So I think Roddenberry. Uh, 
may have stolen an idea or two from hmm. his work. Well, because that could very well be given the. Yep, I'd 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 stand in the line in the rain for one of Stu Burns' stories. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I I'm very impressed that uh, we can, you know, be surprised like this. That yeah, there's so much stuff. Yeah, it's just like like I had no idea. And now, now here's something else I found out as I was reading this. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were going to bring this up. That have I re- have I encountered his work before? Mm-hmm. I have, and I didn't know it. Yeah. <laughs> what well, was let's it? Just, let's just see if this is the one you were thinking. L- listeners, back when I was young and strong, or just young. There was a cartoon on about a science fantasy cartoon about a barbarian in a post-apocalyptic world going around dealing with monsters and magic and stuff. And his name was Thundar the Barbarian. Right. Which was inspired by a novel by Deburn called Thundar. Yeah. Like, had no idea till this till this podcast that, that there was that, that connection. I loved Thundar to pieces. Yeah. Uh, it's not one I ever saw, the- actually, but I heard about it. Um so it, I don't think it even has his name uh, anywhere on the Wikipedia entry, though. I'm just no, it, it burn um, B Y R N. Nope, it's not showing up. No, no, but it has it on burn. So yeah, it does. Oh, yeah. And you can see the connection. Um, you know, they changed the name by adding an extra R on the end to make it yeah. more R. <laughs> but uh, even the name sounds like a Stuart J. Burn, you know, like based on this, you know. Uh, Garth Ennis makes me think of Garth Ennis. <laughs> so I had no problem remembering what the n- name of the main character is. But Thundar, it's a very, um, uh, I don't know, round and sounding name. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's like, uh, and I was thinking, oh, I probably back then I was thinking, it's just another one of the many, many ripoffs of Conan, right? Um, and, you know, the most famous is He-Man. Uh, yes, I, mean, I know. I remember He-Man. The uh, way was He-Man was created, right, was that they made the toys. And then they, at the time, this is how they, they, yeah, they, yeah, they make they, the show yeah, yeah. to Mid, sell the yeah, toys. Yeah, mid-80s was toys then show like He-Man right. and G.I. Joe and She-Ra. So but this many. is early 80s where they did where they did the toys afterwards. I even think there were many toys of Thundar, poor Thundar. only lasted like a season and a half. Yeah, sadly. and so it doesn't – it actually, even though he is this – barbarian with a sword running around doing stuff right um he's not a conan ripoff as much as he is an inspired by burroughs and john carter mars style adventures the planetary romance and it's very clear if you read that Stuart j Byrne uh, wikipedia entry that he is a huge fan of burroughs oh definitely um that, did that, you... that, 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 that drips through on every page of this novel did you read um did you read about his his tarzan novel ah that it never got published that's interesting and and the fact that he wrote uh basically what turns out to be fan fiction (laughs) because they won't license it right um is testament to the fact that yeah he totally was in love with with the burrosian universe right the pellucidars and the the um carsons of venus and and of course uh the barsoom books and tarzan mm-hmm. and the, and it's very it's very um male romance esque. it's what and you can see why he wanted to you know write one of those books because this book which 
you know, really didn't get the respect you would expect um, for the quality of the book that it's, it wasn't republished since, since um, 53 until like 2010. Crazy. Cause yeah, it's a well, pretty good well, book. Well, lost the time. Yeah. Right. Uh, 2013, 2013. It's, it's a, an amazing fact that it's like, that's, that's a long time to go without, without a publication when the book how is did, this interesting. Like, how did it even get found back? That's like, like, how, like, how, like the archeology span of, of this sort of thing is interesting. Like, how does it actually, how did it even get found again? Well, it's interesting because he was still alive in 2011 and I think it was 2011. And, uh, so it was published, you know, republished when he was a, a very old man. In fact, I think he was born in, in maybe he died in 2013. Um, he was born in 1911. So he's actually growing up with Burroughs coming out, right? Burroughs' first stuff is, I think, 1912. And then, uh, you know, it's gonna, it's all published right up to World War II. So that whole period of time is just jam packed with Burroughs. So he's growing up with it. And then when he comes of age, you know, he's selling to the, to the, uh, the pulps basically more of the same, more of that kind of adventure. But like I said, this is not a, it's not a filed off. Uh, serial numbers version, like He-Man, right? It literally was supposed to be a Conan figure, right? And then the, right. they, they just changed the, uh, they couldn't get the licensing. So they changed the, uh, the color of the hair. <laughs> He's blonde now. And they added a, um, a different symbol to his chest harness or whatever. Um, and it, it gives him in Skeletor instead of, uh, Thulsa Doom, right? So that, that's a, I mean, obviously, it developed on its own into its own little thing. Uh, I'm not a big He-Man fan, so I can't say. Or She-Ra, the spin-off of that, right? Which she's, we, we, she's we, uh, which which is done better than the original now. Now that it has a reboot, I haven't seen, I haven't seen yeah, it because now because now, now they've rebooted it with the, with the modern adaptation and going to and extending and developing the idea. It's, there's it really no connection to to a. He-Man at this point. It's really its own thing. And but is it any good, the new uh, yeah. series? Oh, yeah. I enjoy, okay. I enjoy it a lot. Okay. It it, 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 it it takes some interesting ideas, especially in the characterization of, of She-Ra and her friend slash antagonist, Katra. They have a really interesting relationship. In it. But in the midst of this, this, this conflict in the world building, yeah, I, I do recommend it. I mean, yeah, it, 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 it's a 30 minutes children's I mean, thirty-minute animated show, but yeah. So it's not going to change the world, but it's 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 entertaining enough. Red Red Sonia would be, I would say, where you know, if if He Man is Conan, Red Sonia from the comics rather than from the original story, right? Is the filed off serial numbers of that? Um, I don't think that this feels more like like I, I, if you told me that this was written by Burroughs, I would say, yeah, I can see that, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, there are some I mean, I mean, the, tricks. The stylings, he, look, yeah. It's, there's some the like styling and tricks. Yeah. yeah so the uh, the the fr- friendship works differently in in Burroughs' world. You know, friendship is uh, incredibly important in Burroughs' world. Um, yeah, that honor-based friendship. Yeah. Yeah, that, and it's that, not that he here. builds again and again. Yeah. So a lot, there's he, a lot more sex and drinking 
which is funny because Burroughs has got everybody naked, right? But there's a lot. There's a. But no one does anything in here. There's a lot more carousing. Yes, and I, I quite like it. And there's no animal friend, <laughs> which is a problem, right? There, there's an animal, but there's no animal friends. I don't think. Is there? No, there, no, there isn't. No. There's no Wula. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no Wula. I mean, I mean. Th- I mean, this is also making me think back to when we were doing the Green Odyssey recently, mm-hmm. which and is also Barosian, right? Which is also Barosian, and that was also a lot more carousing because it's Jose Farmer. So, and, but it's also it was done as more of a sat parody comedy, uh, yes, loving that, parody comedy, a, a loving comedy, comedy, comedic parody. Yeah, or this or is straight up, very, very. I'm going to give you more of what you love because I love it too. Have you read? Um, Speaking of books in this vein, have you read uh, King of Old Mars? Mm-mm. That's Michael Moorcock. It's ostensibly part of his Eternal Champion series, but basically it's John Carter. Okay. It's a guy who in the south of France gets transported to ancient Mars, fi- falls in love, fights the bad guy. It is – It is. It, even back when I read this back in the 90s, Back in the early nineties, like, oh God, this is just this is just Burroughs again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's he's hard to escape, even, right? He it, he doesn't even try. It's like, I mean, I mean, the character's like, I think he's a vet, and he, uh, yeah, it it it's just like very, uh, very much uh, in in that vein. Although he's not quite, he's not as heroic as John Carter is, but I mean, John Carter is. Uh, John Carter is reluctant at first, but this cat, but uh, Kane is much more. He wants to doesn't want to fight at all. But you know, it, uh, it's also Glory Road by Heinlein. It's really well, yeah. hard to escape the orbit of Burroughs. He's he's always there in other people's writings, and right. I, I, I think I, there was I some. Dan, was it Dan the, Simmons who did a three book series? No, maybe it wasn't Dan Simmons. I remember Tantor put out a series of, they were like um, Barosian on the three different planets. Uh, or maybe it was oh, just no, two. Oh, and one no, of them no, 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 was no, a Venus. No, no, no. Oh, you're talking about S.M. Sterling's book? S.M. Sterling, SM Ster- that's right. Yes, S.M. SM Sterling, yeah. The yeah the, uh, uh, the Thrones of, uh, not the Thrones of Mars. Uh, sorry, listeners, uh, what's the name of those books? Um, S.M. Sterling's books for tantor i remember i don't i never read them but that's what i was being sold i I, I i i i did i did read the i did read the did read the three of them they were was it three uh there um oh no those two i think no, it was it just was two the, one for venus and one, one for, venus for mars and, right one for venus and one for one for mars right um how were they do you remember um the sky people and in the courts of the crimson kings that's right um, Skykeeper was okay in the courts of the Crimson Kings. I thought it was more interesting. It was a couple years later. It was a little more mature. Mm. I and 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 and, and, it, and it ended with a nice big wide open. I'm going to spoil this wide open sort of uh, thing. So that but basically at the end, the the Martian and the human have basically found basically a portal to a completely new planet. And they and they're thinking, cool, we have a new planet to explore. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, and there's talk that there's other portals to other places is like he goes wide at the end to let the reader imagine that they could have endless adventures in this universe so how would you characterize those books um in comparison like we've seen 
sort of the comedic parody, you know, having fun with it rather than making fun of it. We've seen the, uh, you know, Heinlein's version. Heinlein's is, version of the undercutting. Um, yeah. I think they're much, much more like DeCamp, which you haven't read yet, which right. is much more, I'm going to try to make this as rationally possible as I can and underpin it because, because in those, in those, in the, in the Sterling books, there are dinosaurs on Mars and, but he, he explains how that could possibly happen. He, he rationalizes how to have a Barosian Mars that, that Mars and Venus that are inhabited and are habitable. He makes it work. And there's a lovely scene at the beginning of the sky people where basically, um, the, um, the lander lands on Mars um, you know, remember um, the Mariner probe? Yeah. The land, the land probe looks around, an alien sees it and whacks it. <laughs> it's a, And Lee, Lee, Lee Brackett, you know Lee Brackett, yep. who's there in the control room says, yes, I do it. <laughs> it's like, that's a very cute way to open the story. Yeah. So, but he explains through the books, through the world building, how Mars and Venus could actually be habitable. It's aliens, of course, but aliens working for millions of years to do it. Mm-hmm. So he actually tries to make it as plausible as you could possibly could. He had his hand wavy him, but he, <laughs> he tries to make it as grounded in our world as you possibly could. Which also reminds me of um, Harry Turtledove's A World of Difference, which has a habitable Mars. The, re- the way he makes that habitable is basically making Mars larger enough that it can hold an atmosphere. And it's actually called Minerva in his alternate world, not Mars. Because, mm. because the clouds the clouds of Mars sometimes make Minerva seem brighter. So that's like the flash of Minerva's shield. Remember from the myth? Mm, so that's how yeah. it gets it called Minerva instead of Mars. And since what Mars Minerva is larger and has larger gravity and has more atmosphere, it's habitable and has aliens. And so I, he can send, he can, he can send Americans and Soviets to go visit the aliens, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about why in this book, like, at the beginning, I, I was like, this is just a planetary romance, probably set on some future, future human empire that has somehow lost. Collapsed. Yeah, collapsed yeah, that, that, and that's lost. That's what I was thinking. Right? That's what I was thinking for most of this book. No, the thing is, is, uh, it's true. It could still be that because the golden <laughs> ship came from somewhere, right? But Earth was not the, the original homeland is, is what we right. were getting. So, um, I, I think that the golden ship is a great, uh, it's a great piece. Like, and, and I think about what he's doing with that ending, right? He's, cu- he's actually cutting off all the sequels. And that might be way, uh, that might be why, um, you know, that it's Earth and blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, you could have more adventures there, but why? You already did your thing, which is, which is pretty cool. Anything else would be less, right? Um, but, by having that, that, uh, thinking that this is just some planetary romance set on a future, uh, colony on a distant star system where they've lost the technology. And then we're revealed that there is this, this other planet, right? Pretty early on. And this golden ship that's always, uh, it's, it hangs over the story like a sort of Damocles, right? It's mm-hmm. up, a visible in the sky, and it actually tells you how far up it is, like in number of units of whatever it is, and then uh, the fact that you can see it as being golden, and it's hanging in um, 
what do you call that? Uh, <clears throat> in, a, in, in a geosty- ge- geosynchronous yeah, exactly. orbit. Geosynchronous orbit, right? So that it can be at a, any place over anywhere on the planet and cut people up, right? And then the fact that it can land and people can get, climb on board and it's all automated, right? It's, it's not, it follows the commands of, it's a, it's a really cool idea for, because what it turns this book into is not a planetary romance like, like, um, Burroughs is, you know, Barsoom. It turns it into a science fiction book of a, of the mainstream type where it says the technology here is actually totally functional, right? He talks about, about, um, the acceleration, right? Um, maybe they have, uh, I guess they have, um, they don't have, they, they have, they, art, they, 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 artificial they have gravity, they, right? Yeah, they have a gravity, they have a gravity drive. Otherwise it wouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. There's artificial they gravity. Don't, they don't, he wasn't thinking about that in, in the, yeah, I mean, he could, stuff, but if yeah. he if he had done that little extra step, I mean, maybe it could even be, you know, if you wanted to adapt this, you could even make the ship uh, have spin or something uh, to do that. But the the fact that he's got this this almost like it's almost a force of nature that is a constructed force of nature, right? It is something reliable, like the tides. They goes, they go up and, and they human, go down. Yeah. And it's inhuman. And it's, uh, and because their whole culture is suffused with worship of many, many gods, many of whom get full names, right? Um, it's really interesting, like how much work he put into this is it's not a work of, you know, slapdashery, which I think, I think I went and looked, uh, on Goodreads and there's like two reviews. And, um, one of them is, you know, the narrator did a good job. And the other one was, um, is, uh, no, it's not, it's, it's, it was a bit, it was more critical. And I think the crit, the critic, criticism is along the lines of, maybe I should just bring it up, right? Last days. Yes. Since there's only, bring bring it for our listeners. Last days of Thronus. Um, we were talking before the podcast started about how uh, it's hard to. Um, we're talking about the used bookstore podcast we're going to do. Um, yes, it's hard to get books uh, that aren't from Amazon. Goodreads is owned by Amazon, and then I, I had a, an exchange. I'm well away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm uh, aware. I had an exchange of uh, you know talking about. I bought something from AliExpress because I try not to use Amazon. And it's, you know, it's, there, there are many moral hazards in the universe, but anyways, um, somebody commented, oh, I use Abe books. And I said, that's owned by Amazon. Yes, I know. I used to be independent, but there's almost nothing that is in like audibles, right? So you can use, you can use downpour, you can use, uh, eBay, um, chapters in Canada. Yeah, I'm if you just have a having local... good bookstores here in Minneapolis, yeah. both new and used. Oh, by the way, he's from Minneapolis, right? Uh, Burn? Burn? I think that's – oh, uh, St. Paul. St. Paul. Yeah. Same difference. He's Same from difference. from the Twin Cities. Yeah. Um, all right. So I got the review here. Uh, yeah, there's only two reviews. Uh, it goes like this. It has all the uh, – it's very negative review. It's got one star. 
Um, it has all the hallmarks cool. of a hastily written product, plus one whose creator has a very specific bidding and endpoint in mind, and is working to bridge the two. I was thinking about that. Is is that true? I think he did have an endpoint in mind. That's, I I think he might have written to that conclusion. That uh, that's right. fair. Yep. That's hastily fair, but that's, written. That's, I don't think so. Not necessarily. In fact, I think he it was pretty good. But I'll read the next. Byrne occasionally had to paste in the gaps with backstory or offstage events. Um, I guess that's true, although paste makes it sound like he's doing it hurriedly, right? Um, and I, did he have to do that, or is that part of the storytelling technique, which I kind of liked? And it says, clearly he was not going back a- and revise. Uh, I guess re- revising. And this leaves the impression that more interesting things are happening to more interesting people while Garanthus is standing around waiting or being talked to. I didn't, I didn't feel that. Not in the audiobook, anyways. The yeah, sto- I didn't, yeah, yeah, I'm not seeing where they're getting that. The story is also strangely unspecific about the context. It's implied that the oppressed Hamarians are some kind of ethnic minority who are slowly being deported to planet Hammerdeen because the th- Thronosians would prefer to be served by the unpredictable and violent non-human polar inhabitants. But nobody says this, and it's not explained clearly. I think it is not explicitly stated. That's true. Um, true. But, but the, 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 what's so cool is we actually start in the middle of a universe here, rather than um, thinking about how the way... I guess it, I guess that's true in... In the Princess of Mars, too, you've got this guy, he shows up on the planet, and he gets into the middle of basically a war between different groups, right? Kidnapping this group and that group, and there's, there's, you know, story going on in the background of that, right? And then we're sort of filled in. Here, because we have no human point of view character, it, it felt like I was basically hanging out with a Roman slave who knows all about how the Roman Empire works, right? Um, and so we're not guided to it in the same way that we are in in a Princess of Mars. Just keep reading here. Yeah. Um, uh, inhabitants, no, uh, but nobody says this and it's not explained clearly. The half explanations conspire to baffle and not tantalize with unseen depths. So this is, this might be what I would call a, a case of reviewism, yeah. uh, which is, it's a serious disease that affects many reviewers, including myself. And so I have to fight against it, which is why I don't do a lot of reviews. Um, space barbarians. This is the, um, uh, how he's tagged it. A guy's named wait, Derek. Wait, what? Space barbarians? Okay. Okay. It's a, fa- okay. If I think about it, it's fair. Space, space barbarians, barbarians quote unquote, is arrived at uniquely with robotic. Uh, so this is, I think, again, a trope that he's citing. He's thinking about is arrived at uniquely with a robotic golden ship left behind by an earlier civilization. It is a tragedy that this is the only remnant of the super science. Uh, and one wonders what more burn could have added to liven up this story. Again, that's a case of why liven up the story. Where, where, where it's pretty lively. Yeah, we where, where where did it flag? I like, was thinking, where's it, where's... I was thinking maybe it needed more pondering <laughs> myself. 
I, I mean, I mean, it's it's pretty much in in the in the in the vein of let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Mm-hmm. It's like where, where where was where was the unliveliness? Yeah, there's a lot of involved there's a lot of battle scenes, a lot of fighting, a lot of drinking, a lot of drinking, I, I a lot of carousing. About, I want to talk about the art, but I'm going to finish off this review. Yeah. Uh, the final moments as it starts to wrap up do achieve power. Byrne finally has a specific vision with a specific end goal, and Garanthus is in a place to witness... Gar- Gar- I'm saying that name wrong. Garthanus is how I want to Garthanus. say it. <laughs> Garthanus is in the place to witness it all and to act appropriately. But the overall impression is less a, quote, tale of multi-generational tragedy than a muddled mess. Um, so before we talk uh, uh- about the art... Before we talk to the audience, say I think this I disagree strongly with this mm. reviewer. Can I mm-hmm. say that? Yeah. Um. I okay. Just start, start, like what muddled mess? Like, I mean, it, it, it's as I said. It said as, as you said. There's almost not enough reflection and pauses for breath in the story. It's just like it's very gonna... action packed. It, it would make. I mean, it's almost the script for a. I was thinking like. Uh, Buck Rogers or something like that, right? He's got so much, uh, so many corpse scenes with sword fights and, uh, sneaking around inside of a spaceship. Uh, it, it, it's, it's Star Wars level of action, right? The first Star Wars movie. A lot of sneaking around and hiding in holds and, uh, there's no space battle, but there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, this is one 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 spaceship. I mean, I mean, we get uh, we get sword we get sword fights, we get kissing, we get uh, spurned romance, we get intrigue, intrigue, double dealing. I mean, I mean, it's like yeah, I I mean, a ton of backstory um, that is not it's not uh, info dumped at all. Which I, I I'm not against info dumping, so. Yeah, I I think this is a case of what I'm calling reviewism. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a it, it's a it's a mode you get into, and maybe it, it might in large part be a a result of of just how you are when you come to something, or how you are what what expectations you bring to things. And this is uh, something uh, it's a serious problem that people have when they do reviews a lot, whether professional or unprofessional. And what I mean by professional is you're getting paid to do it. Um, if you look at the reviews of people who, who write for, um, IMDB or what, what's that, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, right? The, yep. the professional reviewers have often very different takes than the non-professionals, the people who are just you know, fans and going to write. And I know, I don't know anything about Derek, but it feels like reviewism because I don't feel like he, he's, he's coming to the conclusion and trying to explain. He, he's writing to his own conclusion that, Oh that's yeah, right. this is not good. And here's why it's not good. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, uh, it's, I'm not saying he shouldn't have writ, written it. I just don't, I don't, I don't feel it. Now, is it award winning. No, but does everything in the world have to be award winning? And and even award so, winning uh, is a bad word in my mind because <laughs> well, award winning well, is means it's it's popular 
with a certain set of group, you know. But even, even even then, so I'm going to I digress and talk about briefly about the book I'm reading now. Mm-hmm. The f- first portion of which was actually nominated for a Hugo Award. It's called Aquila by S.M. Samto. It's early 1980s, and it's a very weird alternate world with a Roman Empire for reasons which I won't. I don't want to spoil for the listeners. Have somehow started conquering North America, and it's and it's it's got a very odd very jokey very light tone to it i mean it doesn't take itself too seriously i, I was thinking like wow hugo readers like this huh who nominees like this huh i would never expected that it's entertaining it's a but it, it has a very strange tonal tonal uh taste to it i'm not quite sure what to make of it i don't even know if there's an audio version of it well you might need to yeah like sometimes you need to know what they're doing like yeah in order to appreciate what they're doing yeah so i think i'm miss i might be missing what 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 samto is doing in this but yeah look at the context you see where it was first published and see what was really hot the year before and it might be in response to that or it might be who knows? Uh, it, I mean, it's not a, it's not a theme that we haven't seen in other things before, right? It it it's true. It's not. Yeah, it's it's not. It wouldn't be the first time. It, but. Often, often these things are sort of answers to what ifs. Right? Oh my god! There is a audio version of this book. We there could theoretically do it as a, a theoretically do Akila in the New World well, on this have podcast. To spoil it for me for me to generate enough interest in it. Um, yeah, uh, maybe off maybe off the podcast, okay. but yeah, it would be interesting to, for you to talk about it. All right, I want to talk that. about the art in yeah. here. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, I don't I don't have a searchable text. Maybe you can find it. But when he he's uh, I don't know some somewhere deep down under the um, under the city, he, and uh, he's on the run, and he suddenly stops and sees what he thinks is a girl and it turns out it's a a statue um beautifully carved right lifelike clearly of an actual person right um he says in his mind and that the artist he he needs to meet the artist <laughs> because the artist yes, knew that's truth really early yeah right the, the, uh, yes that's pretty early in the book and then turns out that the artist is standing there nearby um and that he's the son of the emperor <laughs> and then he says, "Oh, and that's my sister." And like, dude, you're carving your naked sister? <laughs> and he yeah, says, I- yes. And they get drunk. Um and they talk about uh the the love that shall not be named, I guess is what it is. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um uh and then uh, that goes away and comes back that theme, but the uh, we we get to meet Look at that. Yeah. That word truth comes up a lot in this story. Um, what's the name of the master carver who taught our, our, uh, our prince, princeling? Um, anyways, he, um, yeah, I he says, unfortunately, my the only person better at carving or st- sculpting than me is my master. And, and he says, I'd like to meet him. <laughs> and then, of course they do meet. And it turns out that there's a whole connection there between them all. It's a very small world uh, or a pair of worlds in terms of uh, how big the families are, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, which kind of reminds me of Star Wars. Like, everybody's kind of relate to each other yeah. after 
yeah. in the end. Yeah. In fact, that you're right. That's another sort sort of connection to Star Wars. Oh, I I have to I have to pause for a second because in, okay. in in relation to our earlier thing about talking about this being the solar system, I just mm-hmm. found the passage in looking through this book. Okay. Beyond Thronus was the giant uninhabitable gaseous world of Kabardine, right. possessing many moons. Hello, Jupiter. Yes. There, that that helps clinches it. Yeah, I was thinking, like he's doing a lot of work to build up this whole world building, and and he's doing a good job with it. I'm 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 totally with you here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a sneaking suspicion, um, but it was not in consciousness. And, and but then when we got to the end, and I heard the name of the, I w- heard that word Haven, and then Eden. Yeah. Uh, that, well, that, it wasn't that, Eden that, exactly, and, and but it was Atlantis close one? enough. Yeah. And yeah, I think it was the word Atlant. Or what their version of Atlantis that I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And, um, that what I mean by this book not having that much pondering, it has a lot more, um, action. Uh, I, I think that it's almost like <laughs> maybe I'm reading into it, but it's almost like, uh, Bloodstone, aka Burn, um, he, w- he wanted to have, philosophy in it without actually um getting into it and so he has our hero garthanis sort of be uh sort of a, a thinker king sort of like call king call call yeah that's exactly what i went to yeah right? he's very <laughs> much about appreciating the art which is funny considering he's you know been a slave for most of his life and um he's well, Col- 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 Coles had been laid low throughout his career too so it's true it's true but um you know with Cull the story can sometimes be about that meditation right whereas mm-hmm. this it's it, and Cull isn't usually about art but he is he does like girls right he does like pretty girls but he's more focused on killing enemies uh, and thinking philosophical thoughts this is of this is a uh, john carter who is appreciating the martian martian uh, sculptors right <laughs> appreciating the, yeah. the halls full full of ancient statues and in normally that's us when reading the book right that we are the person who appreciates john carter's getting busy with getting on with the story and he's he's having fun but he's not he's not dwelling on the beauty of what he sees and we actually get that at the end with the statue uh on what turns out to be Mars right staring at earth um mm-hmm. and abandoned right but it's also it's in that opening song um and it's cool listen to this uh sure. the golden years are dead and cold and gone are the hamara kings of old when Thronus was their own. I don't know if I'm doing the tune right. Who hears the magic song of old and old is U-L-D. Old. Whoever shall thou behold who held Sinarth's bridge alone the empire ramparts fell where Muthark's ancient temples knell the depths of old glory when the nevermore the golden swell the temples will retell Great Melthus ancient story. So this is actually a future echo of what's going to happen. Right? Yes. And, and it's an echo of what happened in the past. 
uh, in so there. What was happened in the past will happen in the future. Oh, God, yeah. that sounds so very Battlestar Galactic. It's crazy. And then uh, down uh, on page 13 of uh, the PDF, um, the Hamarian hesitated wistfully. Um, but after reading Garanthus's grim face, he thought better of arguing. He turned slowly and left quite obviously, uh, sorry, quite oblivious of the blind priest, blind beggar priest. Garthanus and the beggar stood there in the afternoon. Far from afar, they heard the continuing song of the Hamarians. The gods looked down our eyes. The gods they are alone, where Hamar never shall atone, but Muthok's deadly thrust. The th- dreams of old we too have known, but we are fl- flesh and they are stone, and yesterday is dust, which right. we get that, that little bit at the end of the story. Yes, and that the, the fact that we are flesh and they are stone, right? Um, there's this kind of playing with, uh, you know, these ancient statues... Uh, we should respect them, worship them, this ancient stuff. But we are flesh. Um, we are alive and we are like, there's a, there is a kind of hidden behind of it, right? The word truth. See how many times it comes up even on this page? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read, uh, just scroll, scroll to the bottom of the page and then read going into the next part. Surprisingly, the beggar showed no fear. He said, this is but proof of his greater wisdom. He leaves his servant blind so that he may see in the light that shines in the darkness. Carthanus looked at the other's unseeing eyes. He had to admit that some courage not borrowed from legend was buoying his spirit up. Give me one truth, he said to the beggar, and I will conquer Thronus. Genthavis <laughs> <laughs> is truth. Go for it. Okay. Can I read Ozymandias at this point? Because it makes me think of the of the Percy or Shelley's okay. poem. Yep. Ozymandias is one of my favorite poems of all time. Okay. All right. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which let's yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It, 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 moves, it moves me just to read that because I love it. I, you know I need to go visit one, Egypt right? just to see it. The Which other, other Ozymandias poem written at the same time? No. It's pretty cool. Um, it's very not well known, but I came across it. Not yeah, because that long I don't ago. know it, so tell me more. Yeah, so there's this guy. His name is Horace Smith. Um, and it, so I'll just read what it says here. Shelley apparently wrote this sonnet in competition with his friend, Horace Smith. As Smith published a sonnet a month after Shelley's in the same magazine, which takes the same subject, tells the same story, and makes the same moral point. It was originally uh, published under the same title as Shelley's verse. In later collections, however, Smith retitled it On a Stupendous Leg of Granite, discovered standing by itself in the deserts of Egypt with the inscription inserted below. <laughs> and it, <laughs> That's a little bit of a long title. It is a bit of a long title. So, here is the... Uh, Smith version of the same story. In Egypt's sandy silence all alone stands a gigantic leg which far off throws 
the only shadow that the desert knows. I am great Ozymandias, saith the stone. The king of kings, this mighty city shows. The wonder of my hand, the city's gone. Not but the leg remaining to disclose the sight of this forgotten Babylon. We wonder, and some hunter may express, wonder like ours, when through the wilderness, where London stood, holding the wolf in chase, he meets some fragment huge, and stops to gaze. <laughs> guess, uh, what powerful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place. Whoa! Isn't that cool? So he's looking forward to yeah. that London 2 Wednesday is going to be like you can this see, and fall down. Wow. You can see, uh, and that's what I thought was so cool about this one, is everybody knows the uh, Ozymandias by Shelley, because Shelley's super famous, and it's a good poem. It's, you know, it's one of the most famous, and uh, for a good reason. Um, but the difference is one is only looking backward and it has the sense that it has the sense that um hubris is a is a great problem right yes <laughs> this guy is wrong about stuff look how wrong he was people barely know who he is and then the other one says uh-huh and yep <laughs> and then we're going to be exactly the same way. And of course he's, he's in his own empire. And right. Because it's right. This is heart of, heart of the Victorian empire. So right. yeah. So it's like, yeah, right in that, in that time frame. And there, wow. There, that's there. really more political too. I could see why Horace Smith might not have been as popular because people might think like, uh, dude. Yeah. It's, 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 it's saying, with us. yeah, it's saying, you know, it's, it's, it's a much more science fictional one. Whereas the other one is more Lovecraftian, uh, in the sense that, you know, there is this ancient, ancient, uh, empire. Whereas this, I mean, it's not that Lovecraftian, but it's got that sense. Whereas the, uh, the Smith is much more science fictional because it, it has that projection. And I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but there is one, uh, set in ancient London. Um, and it's around the, about a hundred years after that this one was, 1817 is the Percy Shelley and the Smith, but mm -hmm. about a hundred years later, there are, there is a, oh, I think we did it on this show. And I think it's even by, yeah, beyond 30. Do you know this? Oh, okay. You know that book? Sounds familiar. It's by, um, it's by Burroughs. Yes. And in yes. fact, be, beyond 30. We, we did this. Didn't yes. We? Yes, David we did Stifle. do this. Duh. Yep. Right, because narrated. it's the 22nd century, and they're, the Americans are. I think there is even. A, I think there is even a wolf being chasing a guy through London. Mm -hmm. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I think oh, I mentioned at the time that kind of also reminds me of the uh, Robert Charles Wilson novel Darwinia, where basically Europe gets replaced with a wilderness, just out of the, out of the blue, and it's mm -hmm. like. The rest of the world has to deal with this, and an American uh, expedition goes to find out. Well, what happened? And spoiler: it was some um, basically a reality collision with another reality. <laughs> okay, 
Yeah, I spoiled it for you. I know. No, you it, like to be spoiled, but basically, that's yeah, I why don't believe it spoils. That's the problem. Yeah, I, I just yeah. like to know what so, what I'm getting yeah, yeah, into. Yeah, so 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 builds up to this whole thing, which we start seeing clues, and he's like, "Oh yes, yeah, so it was a reality intrusion, basically, which basically took a piece of the earth and put another piece in the place. Very, um, very much like um, sidewise and not is it sidewise in time? Yeah, I think it's sidewise and mm-hmm. not sidewise in time. It's the other one by uh, from from the 30s, where basically pieces of the earth get rearranged with each other. It's it's also very much like the Torg role-playing game. So it's it's the same sort of idea. There is a, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but there's a, there's a number of really cool books that, that go to, you know, future earth and look back at the works of we mighty, you know, of our period. Um, Um, Oh yes. And one Uh, of them, one of them I found on, I think it was archive.org. And it was really cool because it had illustrations, and it's it purports to be the um, the journals and a report to a great chieftain in uh, I think uh, the Arabian Peninsula about uh, what's going on in North America, and mm-hmm. he sails into New York Harbor on his dow or whatever it is, um, and there's the Statue of Liberty sort of you know slumped and sunk half into the ocean and the primitives occupy the landscape and it's it's like wow it's it, it is very much planet of the apes sort of before planet of the apes right yeah um and that, that that's the depth that i feel like this is is just skating over with this very fast-paced um fast-paced book yeah right? uh, an- another book that you might like, I don't think there's an audio version of, unfortunately, um, is Jack McDevitt's Eternity Road. It was written in the 90s. It's a post-apocalyptic North America and people living basically in the ruins. And they, they call the old civilization the road builders because what's left is all the highways. Uh-huh. So, so that's what that's how, what they call us. And, they're, and they, the plot revolves around uh, – the main character finding a copy of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which I thought was really nicely on the nose. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's a really good book that doesn't get a lot of love these days. And I wish there was an audio book because we could do a read along, mm-hmm. but there isn't, which makes me sad. Well, the the good news is there's more and more audiobooks all the time. Um, and if it's an old, if it's old enough, what what year is that one? 97 i believe no, no chance of an uh of a public domain version yeah it's gonna be a long long time i i i can't remember the name of that book i'm thinking of the but i was i was hoping somebody would do an audiobook of it there's so many great books that are just hidden away that, that we don't know like this one like, like this you don't one know about it yeah it's, it's like i i i don't do rating systems you know if this was luke burge's show um he would have some rating for it i think that <laughs> the it, it can it's a part of the problem of re- reviewism is like control your mind. Luke seems to be pretty good about not having that happen to him, but thinking about what you will give a, a star rating or rating out of 10 or whatever, I think can, can cloud your judgment as to well, form oh, yeah, your opinion. As, yeah. It, 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 it straight jackets you in some ways. Well, it, it, it says, I feel like this is a six, you know, six out of 10 book. And then you, point to things to make it to to make your feelings match that belief and i can't i i can't think that that's fair for anything this big like it's not like um uh even 
You know, uh, the one that is classically used in pain management, right? Is the scale of one to 10, what your pain, <laughs> pain level is. They come up to the patient and they give them a little chart and it goes between, I guess, zero and 10. And it has little faces on it. And the, the last face is like, you know, the worst <laughs> pain in the world. And the first face is like a little uncomfortable, right? Yeah, and, like when I broke my when I broke my foot, they asked me to rate my pain. Like, wait, what? Right. I, I'm not I, I really had but trouble see, trying there, to actually rating it. But but you you can at least point in a direction, right? And and very vaguely. But actually see this is quite useful, right? Because you know what pain is worse and what pain's less. Right. Yes. So, like, when you have a toothache, it's generally greater pain than a headache. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, if we if we say hangnail, that's maybe a one. <laughs> Let's just say a hangnail's one, and uh, I, I don't know a gaping flesh wound from a, a sword stab. I've never had one myself. Uh, we'll say that's a, a nine, okay, <laughs> or an eight. Um. So if 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 we can do it sub. It is obviously subjective, but at least it's subjective to to the one to a person, standard, yeah, uh, to a standard of one person, right? So that's okay. That's the way Luke justifies his his use of the rating system is that it's his subjective opinion about how he felt the book was, and so he because he's not writing reviews, I think that that also helps his his reviewism, and he he does the number after he at the end of the podcast, right? He doesn't start with a number usually. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that, well, I think it's helpful for him, right? So for, but when I'm writing up a review, um, when I used to write them for like IMDB or whatever, right? I would think about where this is in comparison to other movies. And the thing is, is this is not a classic like uh Keep on the Borderlands or sorry, Keep on the Border. That's a different Wow, that's a D D House on the Border House on the Borderlands, right? It's not a classic like House on the Borderland. It's not a classic like um I don't know, the time machine. But it ain't bad. Not by a long slide long shot. Long slide. It's not bad yeah. at all. In fact, it's quite good. And I'm very impressed with it. Especially for a book I'd never heard of by an author I'd never heard of. Very, very good stuff. And uh, uh, if you like world building, um, this has got more than it has any right to have, given how little publication, yeah, yeah, Yeah. you know, little publication and attention this has. It, it it has. I think that this has a lot more than um, than the Green Odyssey. Um. I think I could see better craft in the Green Odyssey as a writer, but as far as, as far as, as they're different writers I, 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 for I, sure. I, I think this is more successful in what it's doing than the Green Odyssey, and you could see Barbara went in different directions after that. I like them both. Ideas, I, and uh, you know, if you said you could only read one and you don't know which one is good, I like them both. So I wouldn't. I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I know, and I, and, and, and my instinct would be for the for farmer because he's a more recognizable name but if you if you gave me both of the both of those without without telling me who the authors were and asked me which one i thought was more successful and i liked better i think this would slightly get above green odyssey but i like them both it's pretty good and i think it's dangerous to you know like i like tolkien way more than i like narnia right (laughs) 
<laughs> just love. I, I, I that, like that, that, that. That's not an uncontroversial opinion. No, I, I think everybody's pretty much in agreement that you know, Lord of the Rings is better than than Narnia. Um, the, I think everybody thinks that pretty much. Uh, you can like Narnia a lot. I like Narnia a lot. It's sort of for a younger set, maybe. It's got but, 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 but yeah, I mean, t- I mean, look, look, look what's in Narnia is still expired. Narnia. Yeah, and look what's inspired and grown more out of people reacting and growing and writing their quote unquote own, as it were. I mean, Bur- Bur- Burroughs certainly wins that because look how much stuff has come out of Burroughs. And between Narnia and Lord of the Rings, it's no contest. Lord of the Rings is clearly yes, the one that has the more fertile ground for people to think like one is a oh. portal fantasy and the other one is a secondary world, right? <laughs> portal fantasies are hard to actually inspire people to do more with. Portal Apparently, fantasies can yeah. be great. I mean, and they, they seem to be back into a little bit of resurgence lately. I'm as not far against as what, them. As far as, not against them, but as far as inspiring more works, I uh, yeah, secondary fantasy will win over reportal fantasy any day. I, I I don't know. I, I don't know if every secondary world does that, but certainly no, no, Tolkien's did. Yeah, but I'm saying a, I'm saying a good one can go one over the other because yeah, it's, it's more to mine. Unless you unless you combine a portal fantasy with second world fantasy and you get amber, but that's a different story. Mm, mm. Well, I was very very happily um, impressed with this book, and I I wasn't sure, um, but I found myself pretty pretty close paying attention to it. Um, and, uh, for, you know, nice short book, only five, not even six hours. Was it six hours? I think it's close. It was, it was about six hours. It was yeah. Six hours well spent. Very, I, I think that's right. It is six hours well spent. And, um, thank you again to Tim Harper for recommendation and a very good reading. This has been the SFF audio podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.